So here's a warm-up question today uh, to kind of get your mind into sermon mode. Everybody ready? Roll your shoulders, snap your fingers, cross your eyes. Here you go. Get the brain juice flowing. The warm-up question, I've, I picked an easy one to start us off uh, uh, in this new season. The warm-up question is, is God fair? It's an easy one. It's a light one. Is God fair? Is God fair? How many say yes? How many say no? And I see that the COVID shutdown has not made you more courageous in answering my warm-up questions. Uh, has God given you good things you don't deserve? Is that fair? Strictly speaking, no. Has God given you bad things you don't deserve? Well, I mean, like if you had bad experiences and struggles that have come upon you unjustly and unfairly. All right, so at least God's not intervening to protect fairness in that respect. Does God sometimes not give you the good things you do deserve? Does, you need that repeated? Does God sometimes not give you the good things you do deserve? You've earned it, you don't get it. How many people are feeling really uncomfortable and suspicious right now? All right, there you go, all right. It's just one of those strange questions in my mind. Uh, I have found that God is faithful, but not fair at all. Does that make sense? Right? He's faithful. He is good. And he's so good and so generous that he doesn't care a lot about fairness. And sometimes that works out for me in, in the moment, and sometimes it doesn't so much. Are you following me so far? And I found that it's just a lot better in life to focus on God's faithful goodness than to get wrapped up in issues of fairness, whether I feel I've been treated fairly or unfairly. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Nah, not so much. You'll reserve judgment until the end of the sermon. I don't blame you. Um, because we're in this sort of seasonal transition coming back to, to meeting together after a whole year off. It's a lot of people, even people like internationally have been asking me, uh, lately about uh, what it was like when we started Blue Water Missions like, you know, 11 years ago or, or something, you know, like what, what was the illuminating moment? What did God say that made uh, the handful of us that started the church realize that it was going to happen? And uh, it wasn't like that at all is, is what my answer is. Uh, I had been, uh, I, I was at, at the end of, of a long string of, of fairly uh, bad luck, you know, and had gone back, you know, like a decade before we started Blue Water Mission. I'd been in academia, and I'd done pretty well. I succeeded. I'd published some articles and stuff like that, but I couldn't find a job at all, in, in large part because the answer that I had produced with my research was sort of politically incorrect. And even back then in academia, that didn't fly too well. So I spent four years on the job market, and it's not that I didn't get a job. Not one person would grant me a job interview in all of that time. And so that kind of, that sort of stunk. That was really heartbreaking because I had, I had dedicated, you know, probably nine years of my life uh, to that. So I took a job at a struggling software company and I ended up kind of having to intervene and, and do a job that I wasn't prepared to do but managed to save the company, got it on its feet. Then the boss stole a bunch of money from the employees in the company, left the company, left the country for a while, and I had to sort of... Uh, 
re redo it again and ended up over the few months sort of saving the company a second time, but I complained to the board of directors about the situation, sort of the illegalities uh, uh, that my boss ha had done, and they didn't believe me, and when the boss came back to the country, he fired me to sort of make the situation better. Uh, at the time, uh, Sonia was uh, pregnant, we didn't have any money, that, that sort of stunk, so that was sort of my outre from academia. Uh, during that time, uh, Sonia and I were trying to have kids, we'd have seven straight miscarriages, that was kind of hard. Uh, and, and in the course of that, uh, I was trying to uh, help with this church plan. This church had become really successful. And Sonia and I kind of got ousted from the church. She was kicked off of staff uh, because um, the head guy was a little bit controlling. And uh, so we got the short end of that stick. Later, it was revealed that he was super controlling and had devastated a lot of lives, tried to divide the church movement. But it was too late to help us. Uh, so when we came to Hawaii, finally, came back, uh, I took a ministry job at a church and worked for several years. Uh, for bureaucratic reasons, uh, we got paid half as much as our peers. And the ministry, I think, kind of went well in individual moments, but didn't really work out. So I had to leave that situation, and we had had no money saved up uh, from the job. We had some savings, which was really helpful. But, um, but the fact that I had left that church uh, resulted in a lot of personal attacks. And that's when we started Blue Water Mission. Uh, and it was one of those moments um, in life where I was wondering if God had zigged and I had zagged. Do you know? It's like, have I, have I just totally misread life? Right? Is that what I've done? Because I've, I've always tried to be good, and I've tried to serve, no matter what the circumstances are, but maybe God turned left back there when I went right. You know? You ever felt like that? Anybody? What? Wave a hand so I don't feel totally evil. All right, thank you. Um, so it was really at the end of about 10 years of things like mysteriously going badly in my life that we started Blue Water Mission, and I just, I, I had just been stressing to people, I had no idea if this would work out. And looking at you this morning, I'm still wondering how well it worked. Did you miss my sarcasm? Did you? How many missed my sarcasm? Thank you. Um, and of course, you know, I characterized those 10 years in a certain way. Good things did happen along the way. We did have a couple of kids, one of which grew six inches during the shutdown. Um, and, uh, you know, I, we uh, had some very faithful friends, you know, and some of you are still, still with us. Uh, after all of these years and a lot of really good ministry moments in which life had changed, you know, but I wonder, did I somehow miss God entirely? Okay, so that's a long-winded setup to today's piece of scripture. Uh, we're going to take a look this morning at John uh, the Baptist, the story of John the Baptist. Have you heard of this guy, John the Baptist? Really cool guy. He's been called the original hippie uh, because he lived out in the desert uh, and uh, wore... Uh, homespun clothing, uh, you might say, lived off the land. He was a hardcore prophet. He was Jesus's personal herald, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, John the Baptist. Uh, and we're jumping in at his story. He, had, he was a revivalist in Israel during those years, and he was calling people to repentance and to moral rectitude. 
He was calling the country back to righteousness after a very difficult time and in very, very difficult political circumstances because they were being oppressed by Rome. They had been overrun by the Romans and there was a lot of political infighting in the country. And this prophetic voice stood up and he said essentially, remember God and get right with God. God is sending a savior. He's coming soon. That was sort of John the Baptist. He baptized people a lot in the Jordan River, which is where he gets his nickname. And then... Jesus came along and took all of John's followers, essentially. And John was pretty cool with this. He said in, in John chapter 3, he must become greater, I must become less. I will give Jesus the church I have developed because he's the point, not me. So very humble guy, very cool guy. Uh, and then what happened was uh, the political family that sort of ruled Israel, not the Romans, but the the. the Jewish family, it was kind of nominally Jewish family, that ran uh, the Jewish part of the government. The Herods, you've heard of the Herods, Herod family. Well, Herod Antipas was the guy that was sort of uh, ruler over the oppressed Jews. And uh, what he did is that he decided he loved his brother's wife, and so he took his brother's wife and married her, which was a little bit incestuous. And... Uh, John stood up and said, that's not right, you know, like incest is not a good thing. Uh, that's against Jewish law. It's against Jewish customs. And so Herodias was the name of the wife. There was Herod and there was Herodias. Got really uh, hacked off, uh, talked Herod into throwing John in prison. So John's rotting in prison, and he is indeed about to die there. So John's gone from successful revivalist to man without much of a following to jailed unjustly, and how many of you know the end of the story? He's about to get his head chopped off in about the most humiliating fashion that you could imagine. So what happens, because Herodias, the incestuous wife, uh, is upset, Herodias talks her daughter, which is Herod's niece, now stepdaughter, into dancing provocatively for Herod to sort of seducing him with licentious dance and talks Herod into giving her a reward and then asks Herod, well, you know, Dad, um, uh, if you're pleased with me, I want you to kill John the Baptist because I don't like the way he's been criticizing my mom. That's, that was sort of the scenario. And Herod painted into a corner, uh, relents. And so Herod gets decapitated, his head brought into the, into the, the White House, essentially, on a silver platter. His death gets celebrated. They humiliate his body uh, because of just really evil people in a very creepy situation, right? He gets killed by the worst, the worst people uh, you can imagine. Salome was the name of the daughter. If you want some disturbing reading, uh, look up Salome sometime and read commentaries on this passage in Scripture because there's been a move recently, both in secular culture and in the church, to sort of rehabilitate Salome's reputation as a champion of gender rights. And uh, that, you know, the Herods were just living an alternative sexual lifestyle, so, and women were oppressed, and the only way that women, unfairly criticized in the public sphere by religious figures like John, could fight back was to use their sexual prowess to get the guy murdered. Um, our culture is just so incredibly lost, you know, and 
John was trying to stand up against a culture that was incredibly lost, and then it got him killed. Okay, that's the situation. So it does not end well for John, and it's really humiliating, and, and he's feeling a little bit um, hard-pressed by the situation, I, get, I guess. So we pick up uh, the scripture for today, Luke chapter 7. That's the background. John is in prison. He's about to be executed. Everything is unfair and creepy around him. Jesus is out in the countryside doing pretty cool miracles, though. And John hears that things are going well for Jesus. But I think he also wonders why Jesus isn't fixing things. You know what I mean? Jesus is doing miracles, but he's not fixing the country. Jesus is helping individuals, but he's not speaking out in defense of John or people like John, right? So Jesus is obviously a miracle-working Messiah, but he's not a problem-solving Messiah. That's the situation. John's disciples told him about all these things that Jesus was doing. Calling two of them, he sent the Lord, he sent to the Lord to ask, "Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else?" Which is kind of a way of John saying, "All right. Well, you know, I've been all in, Jesus. Is it going to work out the way I thought it was? You know, I mean, you're doing a lot of great things, but hello, that's kind, of the, that's kind of the message, right? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Not just a loaded phrase. It's like, I'm out here doing a whole bunch of miracles, parenthetically, but not for you. <laughs> Blessed is anyone who, gets to, who can handle that sort of situation. Blessed is anyone who doesn't get offended because I'm all-powerful on one hand and seemingly inattentive on the other. Is anybody resonating with the situation? Right? You ever been in one of these places in life where it's like, God is God. He's amazing. I see him doing great things. My life kind of stinks. You know, I wonder if God is my God. Anybody? It's okay to shout encouragement to me. That was not all that encouraging. After John's messengers left, okay, in other words, that's all John gets. All he gets is, yeah, I'm doing miracles, don't freak out. That's all John gets. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go into the wilderness to see when John was ministering in the wilderness? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. There's a little dig on the Herods right there, if you're reading in between the line. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? 
Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. John is such a huge prophet that he was predicted in the Old Testament. That's how important this guy is, Jesus is saying. I tell you, among those born of women, which is everyone, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. In other words, this is a really, really great man. The greatest of all men born. But there's something more important going on now. And I need you to not focus so much on John. You get it? You following? All the people, even the tax collectors, even the big sinners, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. In other words, they were fans of John, so they recognized that Jesus' compliments to John were correct. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Uh, In other words, there's a big political divide here. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What's this political divide about? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, well, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her children. We'll talk about that end piece in a second. I think it's just really fascinating. Um, I love that analogy. Children in the marketplace complaining. Uh, We're in a sermon series on the everyday Bible, and we're just sort of modeling together what it's like to wrestle with a piece of Scripture. And we recommend three things. When you read a piece of Scripture, first, try to determine for yourself what the main theme is. What's What's this about, most generally? And then two, ask yourself, remember, what bugs me about this passage? Because it's the things that bug you that will spark the most learning in you. And then the third thing is, well, how how can I apply this wisdom to my life? What's going on here and how can I uh, apply it? And the key theme, I think, in this this scripture is, is something like, what do you do or how do you understand things when you feel as if your faith might have ruined you? I think that's what was going on for John the Baptist. He's like, as far as I can tell, I've done everything right, but my life is ruined in a big way. And it's not going to get better for John, right? He's going to die in that cesspool. What do you do? How do you navigate that? And if you're on the outside looking at it, how do you think about it? Right? So there's a, it's a passage about injustice in a way. John is in prison for preaching. He's going to be killed shortly uh, under humiliating circumstances, terrible circumstances. And the dude is having some uncertainty. He is, by Jesus' definition, like the greatest prophet who ever lived. But even he is feeling a little bit uncertainty about what's going on. And John, to his credit, is kind of trying not to feel disillusioned. He's reaching out to Jesus for help. He's like, oh, buddy, cousin. They were cousins, by the way, John and Jesus. Like, what, what's going on? Like, are, are we in this together? Are, are you remembering me? Is it okay? How should I feel? 
he wants some reassurance because he's a human being, a great human being, but a human being nonetheless. And here's what bugs me about this passage. Jesus doesn't really give John a lot of personal reassurance, does he? He says, oh, John's freaking out a little bit. You know, if anybody could sympathize with it, probably Jesus, who knew he was going to be killed shortly. But you don't get a lot of sympathy out of Jesus. Instead, what Jesus says is, hey, out here on the kingdom frontier, there are lots of miracles going on. Uh, The prophecies are being fulfilled. Blind people are uh, seen. Lame people are walking. You answer, John. You go tell him what you see. It's not my job to reassure him. And to how many people does that feel just a little bit harsh? Two of you are paying attention. That's, if you were in jail about to be killed for speaking truth to power, how would you feel? It's like, dang. It's like you would want a Lord that really comforts you in that situation. And it seems as if Jesus is going out of his way to not be as comfortable as he might. It's as if Jesus is saying to John, no, you don't get to relax your faith yet. And there might be wisdom in that, right? There might be wisdom. There might be wisdom in Jesus provoking John because John was a hardcore fellow, you know, and and maybe that's all John needed to hear. It's like the miracles are continuing out here. The kingdom is advancing, John. Quit your complaining. And maybe that was the right thing to say. But it does bug me a little bit. I've got to be honest with you. And it makes me want to figure out the ways of God in situations uh, like this. You know, he doesn't say, hey, tell my cousin I love him. He doesn't say, tell John he's done a great job. He doesn't say, tell John it's going to get better soon. (laughs) He just says, tell John... The kingdom marches on. Would that be enough for you? I would like to think it would be enough for me. Uh, But I'm probably more human than even John. (laughs) In fact, Jesus kind of strongly implies in his message later that John's time is over. He says, no one born of women is greater than John. But even the least of the kingdom is, is, is greater In other words, there's more important things going on now, which is kind of harsh. It's just a little bit harsh, I think. It strikes me that John's greatness, as great as he was, translated to honor in principle. I mean, it's clear that Jesus is a fan of John the Baptist, but it did not translate into honor in practice. And there's the dissonance of the kingdom of God, which is already and not yet, right? He must become greater. I must become less, John prophesied, and he was correct. That passage at the end I really like, to what shall I compare this generation, this political infighting, divided, morally lost generation? To what shall I compare these leaders, these Pharisees that criticize John? Uh, Well, they're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, we played the pipe for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't cry. John Uh, fasts, and they criticize John for his fasting. Jesus doesn't fast, and they criticize Jesus for not fasting and hanging out with the wrong people. These religious authorities, these moralists are never satisfied. You can't please them. They're like, I I love the analogy. They're like children crying out in the marketplace. Hey, I'm playing the pipe, and you're not dancing. What's your problem? 
Well, it may be that children aren't very good musicians, you know. Uh, the portrait that Jesus paints is of immature, really self-important people that demand you dance to their tune. And if you don't, they think it's your problem, not theirs. And those are precisely the people that killed John. And Jesus is going to let it happen because that's just what's going down in the generation. In the meantime, he's going to push the frontiers of the kingdom forward. He does say at the end, wisdom is proved right by her children. In the long term, in the great scheme of things, truth always wins. In the long term, Justice always prevails. In the long term, God's generosity defines your destiny. Always. But it might take a generation. Wisdom is proved right by her children. (laughs) You might not see it in this generation, is what Jesus is saying. Those words were written down... Uh, early in the years A.D., and it has proven correct. Nobody would have predicted that this movement started by this backwoods Jesus of Nazareth and his humiliated cousin John would come to take over huge sections of the globe. Nobody could possibly predict that. They were wise, and it has been proven correct by the children, by future generations. Uh, But in the short term, man, did it look like a disaster. And Jesus, of course, was on the way to his death on Golgotha, so it would continue to look disastrous and wonderful and disastrous and wonderful but disastrous as he did miracles and preached the truth and got disrespected by half the people at least most of the time. That's the situation. The kingdom of God is like a miracle in a dirty paper bag. It looks impressive and unimpressive at the same time. So how do we apply this sort of thing? Uh, I would say something like this maybe. When everything has gone wrong for you, it might not necessarily have all gone wrong for you, right? And we kind of understand that because we're used to being eternally minded. Even if this life gets ruined for you, the next life, the more important one, may in fact not be ruined at all. It might in fact be glorious, but maybe the price of your ticket to get to eternity is to accept a little ruination in this life. Maybe you need to endure for this generation, and maybe your children, so to speak, literal or metaphorical, will prosper in your place. Is that okay? Is that okay? And Jesus is saying, well, sometimes that's the nature of the kingdom of God, people. Even for the great ones, even for the Baptists, um, but even if you're the most humble and courageous man who ever lived, even if you're John the Baptist type, you might feel as if God has forgotten you. So I can preach that truth a lot, can't I? I can say, even if this life is ruined, hey, be happy, eternity is coming. I can preach that truth all day long, but I want to recognize that we're human. I want to recognize that while that truth is true, you might be kind of uncertain and doubtful in the moment. Even if you're the greatest person ever born, even if you are a true prophet, you might still struggle. And I will definitely not judge you for that. 
and neither would Jesus. One of the things I like about Jesus' answer to John the Baptist is that he does not address John's uncertainty. He just says, hey, things are going great. Full stop. He doesn't say any more. He doesn't say, tell John to stop doubting. Because it's almost as if Jesus refused to see that struggle, which is sort of a, I mean, it's sort of dignified, right? It's like, well, that's, the struggle is a little bit embarrassing. Everything in your life is embarrassing right now, John. I'm going to treat you as if you're not doubting at all. You get it? You see what he's doing? I bet the men get it, right? Because like when, when a guy's having a problem and you know he's having a problem and you get together and do something, sometimes the way you help him with his problem is by not talking about the problem. Am I right? Men? Can I get an amen? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Right? And the women are like, that is so dysfunctional. Okay, yes, but in our defense, we are men. We just have limitations. Uh, and so I get it. I get it. I, li- I like that part. Just because your life gets ruined doesn't mean that eternity is ruined, but you might feel ruined. That's okay, man. That's okay. Because the fact is God has been unfair to you. And I think you've been trained to think that God is to be fair to you. No, God is to be faithful to you. That's different. You get the difference? But it will stress you out. And I, for one, as a co-traveler, will say, hey, I get it. I'll do whatever I can to help you uh, in, in that moment. Um. <clears throat> Over years and years of ministry, I have, uh, from time to time, been called onto suicide watches. You know, someone will present to me and say, I'm about to kill myself. I'm thinking of killing myself or something like that. I myself have struggled with depression really, really deeply and, uh, and gotten suicidal uh, at times. See if this makes sense to you. This is a little weird and it might be a little offensive, but see if it makes sense to you. I feel that I have, on occasion, saved people from suicide by agreeing with them that their life is too much to handle. You know, by deeply validating their suffering and their experience. I, doubt, I don't invalidate their struggle in order to protect God's reputation. I'm quite willing to say, yeah, man, God has treated you unfairly. I'm fully willing to say that because I know it to be totally possible. Now, eternity is coming, but no need to talk about that to someone who's struggling that deeply with depression and with suicidality. God can be brutally harsh, even to amazingly good people. And knowing this sometimes helps struggling people feel as if they're not necessarily worthless, as if God has not lost track of them, right? And that's why I need to be able to say, hey, life is unfair, and God is sometimes the author of the unfairness. I need you to know that, because if you don't know it, you might think that God has jettisoned you or judged you or forgotten you. You see the difference? And that is not true, because God is faithful. He's just not fair. And sometimes you need to let go of your hold on fairness in order to appreciate God's faithfulness. Amen? You get it? I, I really loved 
I really love disguised greatness in people. You know, I really love greatness in people that you don't see at first glance. You know what I mean by that? Someone who looks awful. Someone who looks like they're struggling in life. Someone who's been, you know, imprisoned or debilitated through circumstances. Uh, someone uh, who looks like God is not blessing them. And someone who feels unblessed. That person, I love those people when they're faithful to Jesus because you see this sort of greatness in them that you don't see in any other sort of people. Um, I've had occasion in life to meet tons and tons of Christian celebrities. I don't, I don't mean to, to sound judgmental, but they almost all bore me to death. Uh, because they're, they're missing that John the Baptist aspect, you know, where like they're, they're faithful, but they're like really successful and really, you know, lauded for what they do. I was like, ah, yeah, all right, sure, but, you know, the world lauds success and, and, you know, so there's nothing special here. There's nothing kingdom here. And then you find these people that look for all the world like losers, but you sense faith in them. I love that. I love it. I call it disguised greatness. Jesus talked about it a lot when he said, uh, the first shall be last or the least shall be the greatest. You know, Jesus was always looking for that in people. And that was the truest of the true faith in his mind. And it makes sense that Jesus would love it. It makes sense that he loved it in John uh, because he knew that that's the way his life would end up too. Humiliated and lowly and apparent failure only to get resurrected to an eternity and to have his wisdom proved right by the children down the line. Uh, I love the struggling, insignificant heroes. Love them. Love them. Uh, they're like food to me. You know, They sustain me because they have pure courage, pure courage, right? They're not able to draw from their circumstances. They might not even be able to draw encouragement from the way God treats them, but they have courage anyway. You know anybody like that? Oh, some of you are like that. And I just, I cannot tell you how important it is to me that you're here. Um, any number of people that you meet today, half hidden behind their COVID masks, have rallied themselves to come to church this morning even though they feel terribly unblessed. Even though they feel unblessed by God. And they might be unblessed, at least in the short term. But they are here anyway. And the world won't notice, and most of you won't notice, but you learn to see it. You learn to see it if you have eyes for it. And to me, it's like, I don't know, it might be the most precious spice in the kingdom of God. Uh, I love it. And those people who came here, even though they're kind of feeling unblessed in life, will go from here today and unrelentingly do good and righteousness this week. How do I know they will unrelentingly do good and righteousness this week? Well, because they came even though they had no particular reason to come. So they're the type of person that will keep going. And you can say that about them. They might be depressed, they might be struggling, they might be reaching for comfort from Jesus, but they're not going to give up because their courage is 
pure courage and not circumstantial. Amen? So they're around you. So just turn around. You don't know who's around you and say, awesome job. It's been a very difficult season, and a lot of you are feeling impoverished. A lot of you are feeling uh, uncared for. A lot of you are feeling unblessed, and a lot of you are feeling uncertain, and a lot of you sense that the near-term future is going to get worse and not better. But you're here, and you're doing good, and that is pure courage. Like John the Baptist, you might even doubt yourself a little bit who you are, but don't you dare do that because you are in a long-standing tradition of people who produce beautiful, beautiful children. Uh, don't judge yourself. I bet that Jesus judges you rather generously. Uh, Father God, I just pray for those hearts who have been uh, broken down and humbled by their circumstances that you administer to them directly in Jesus' name this morning. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would put in them the scent of kingdom future, the scent of eternity and the scent of legacy. As the Bible says, sometimes the people who seem the most lost produce the greatest legacy. In Jesus' name, amen.